Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. I am Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church, and yeah, it's my pleasure to be here with you all this morning. We are continuing through our little Advent series. We're doing four weeks, kind of focusing in on the birth narrative of Jesus, um, according to the Gospel of Matthew. And um, as we're doing this, you're going to notice something. Um, the closer you look at this birth narrative, the like it becomes less Christmassy as you go. And um, you know, it's kind of a bummer. Like this is the Christmas time, and we want happy things and shiny things and bright lights and um, that's not really what Matthew gives us. And so I'm sorry, but <laughs> we're gonna go there. And um, I want to talk about maybe why. What are some reasons that we want that? Why do we want kind of like a very um, polished, maybe superficial optimism at this time of year? And a lot of why, I think, is, well, A, our hearts long for it, but B, then we have things feeding that longing that kind of tap into that desire and give us what a cheap version of what we want. Um, I'm going to use a couple of movies, and I'm probably going to ruin these for you. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm the Scrooge. I'm the Grinch of Portico, so we're just going to go there. Um, a Christmas Carol, of which there is only one legitimate version, Michael Caine, as narrated by Gonzo and Rizzo, a Muppet's Christmas Carol, right? Yeah, fantastic movie. If you look at it, you have Ebenezer Scrooge, who's a miserable, lonely, wretched man who's kind of like plaguing this town. And he gets visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And the message is very clear. It's like, your life is a mess, and you're causing all of this pain, and if you keep on this track, you're going to die a lonely death, and nobody will be at your funeral. And here's how you change. Don't do that and be nice. And so, you know, that's all it takes for Mr. Scrooge. And he wakes up and the next day he's, he's nice. And the movie ends with him sitting around the table, you know, providing a big Christmas feast and everybody's happy. Be nice and it'll fix everything. You can do it. You just have to come to conviction of what is wrong, and then change. So that's one message we get. Um, and again, if you don't look too closely at it, it seems, it seems good, it seems plausible, it seems like a good message. Another one is from um, It's a Wonderful Life. And this, in this movie, it's a little bit different, but it's kind of the same. You have mostly a nice guy, so it seems like it's completely opposite, you have mostly a nice guy, and he's living a pretty good life. But he becomes very depressed because it doesn't seem like things are going his way. It seems like the not nice people in the town are winning the day. And so he has a, you know, this kind of like second-class angel, Clarence, who comes along and um, guides him and tries to help him and encourage him. And basically the message of It's a Wonderful Life is, well, just trust the goodness of your nature the good things you've done. And even though it doesn't seem like it, in the end, you'll come out on top. And 
Clarence says something, and I think it's maybe the most depressing statement um, in, that I can think of off the top of my head. And it's that, in the end, Clarence is saying this to George Bailey, he says, in the end, you're not a failure if you have friends. Implication is, if you're lonely, if you, have fr if you don't have friends, you are a failure. And so, these are the stories that kind of inform our imaginations about Christmas. And again, they provide this like really attractive vision, but then we're left longing for what it promises to deliver. How many of you guys are actually thinking that your Christmas dinner this year will resemble the one at the end of A Muppet's Christmas Carol? Everybody very happy and laughing? No conflict, no tension, no disagreements. Or at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, where you have um, just basically a good guy and everything's going to work out in the end. That's not how life works, and we know that. And so today we're going to look at a better story with a better ending. But it won't seem like it. And so it kind of will put some tension on you, put some tension on what you might be looking for this season and what you might be looking for for the rest of your life. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. So let's go ahead and read this, and then I'll pray. <clears throat> now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Um, we thank you for your word that doesn't uh, let us hold to um, lies, to superficial half-truths that ultimately um, disappoint us and destroy us. Um, God, we thank you so much that you um, see the depths of the condition of this earth and that you have created a way to um, bring us into a new earth for an eternal life of joy and peace and love and hope. God, help us to believe this. Help us to live by it here this morning as we visit afresh um, the story of your son and what he has done for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking with some friends um, in, a book in a little book club that I'm doing, 
and we were talking about endings, and the ending of this book was, um, it was unsatisfying, but it was very real. Um, it was kind of this, this very kind of cathartic seeming scene, but then there's like a big question mark at the end. It's like a cliffhanger kind of. Um, and we we're just talking about how frustrating that can be, <laughs> how we want everything to be kind of tied up with a nice little bow. Um, and then God is just kind of talking about the nature of a good story. And sometimes a good story leaves you very confused and kind of wondering how it's going to resolve. Because that's what we feel in this life. We don't often get those like perfect resolutions where like, oh, there's a direct correlation there and everything's like working out perfectly now. There's always kind of like an ellipse to the little endings that we get. And it's like, if you wait long enough, the ending kind of gets undone. And then you're like, oh, we have to do this again. And it becomes this cycle. Well, that is, that is the story of Israel. That is the story of God's people. And it's a story that begins um, really in the garden and follows the people of Israel throughout. And that's where Matthew takes us in this passage. He takes you, um, takes you to two different prophecies that summarize the story of Israel. And so the first is Exodus, and the second is exile. And so these um, prophecies point us directly into this kind of cycle of exodus and exile that happens to, God pe to God's people. And so Jesus' um, trajectory and his travels as a little infant are filled with meaning. I mean, he's not even doing anything. He's, you know, maybe can walk, maybe not. He's just being taken by his parents, and he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And so Matthew is kind of showing us that this is not um, just kind of happenstance, but it's loaded with meaning. And so we should read it that way. So let's look at first Exodus. Let's look at Exodus. So in verse um, 15, it says that Jesus is sent to Egypt by an angel of the Lord. Right? So this angel comes to Joseph and he says, hey, you guys have to run, like right now. Get up and go because Herod is trying to kill your son. And so they run and he tells them to go to Egypt. Egypt is a pretty convenient place. That would have been like a place that would make sense to run to because there's still a lot of Hebrews um, in Egypt. There's probably like a million or so. So there's still like a solid base of operation, a solid cultural base. There would be somewhere to go to. But it's also a very counterintuitive place because Egypt is kind of the source of the first major exodus of Israel, right? It, Joseph's family, if you go back into Genesis, Joseph's family ends up in Egypt and then that was a haven, but it turns into a place of oppression, of slavery, of captivity, of pain. It turned into a place where they needed to be delivered out of and taken from. And so Jesus is kind of retelling this story through his own life. And what we learn is that um, Jesus has actually placed himself under the oppressive powers of this world. 
So Jesus, the son of God, son of David, he's come and he's placed himself under the oppressive powers of the world. And this placing himself under these oppressive powers requires a new exodus. It requires a new exodus. And it's, a, it's an exodus that is completely hopeless. Like there's not, there's not rosy outlook for Jesus here. He has Herod, who's like a very capable and ruthless leader. And he's, all his attention right now is on pursuing this one little helpless baby and destroying it by any means necessary. And so um, this isn't a human contrived exodus. This isn't like a victory of human willpower and strength. If you're Joseph, you're like, okay, we have, we have this responsibility of raising this really important child, and then the angel comes to you in the dream and is like, yeah, so the um, government is trying to come and kill your child. And Joseph's like, okay, what's our game plan here, angel? He's like, run. Okay, that's not, that's not a great game plan. But it's what he does. And he heads into Exodus, and it's a really interesting choice that, um, that Matthew makes here to quote this line. Because this is actually a quote from the prophet Hosea. And so let's go to Hosea 11, 1 and 2. All we get here is like one little line in here, but it's actually Matthew turning his audience's attention to what's happening in this portion of Hosea. So Hosea is this story of this covenant love between God and Israel. And God has this massive amount of covenant love for Israel. And Israel is portrayed as the unfaithful wife. And God is constantly pursuing this unfaithful wife. And so in verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It's alluding to that point where God identifies um, the Israelites as his son. And it's because of that that Pharaoh has to let them go. It says, this is my son, Pharaoh. You have to let him go, all of the Israelites. But then in verse 2, we get more of the story. We get the real message of Hosea. It says, the more they were called out, to redemption, to freedom, to safety, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So you see in the story of Israel is a story of being saved, of being rescued from oppression, of being set free from all the powers that held them captive and then not being able to live in their freedom not being able to fulfill their end of that covenant. Because as soon as they're rescued, God shows them how to live as his people, and they reject him. The more they receive from him, the more they reject him. And so this leads into, very seamlessly, into kind of the next movement of the story, which is exile. That is why the people are exiled. It's because they were sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And so out of Egypt go the Israelites. This is like a you know, really quick history of, of Israel. Into the promised land where they are sacrificing to the Baals and worshiping idols. Out they go into exile. 
And Matthew takes us there, and he takes us there in um, pretty brutal in a pretty brutal way. But that's again what is going on. He doesn't sugarcoat the reality of the world. In verse 16, we get this transition. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or or under, according to the time when he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so Matthew ties this event of Herod killing all of these male children in in and around the area of Bethlehem, which was probably, there weren't that many people, so there's different estimates. We don't really know. People say anywhere from like 15 to 30 kids, so it's not like, you know, thousands and thousands, but it's tragic. (laughs) These are real families who have just lost their children. And you have to ask yourself, like, is it worth it? Like, we just traded one child for 30 or ever, however many. Like, how does that math make sense? What's going on here? And so we are taken by Matthew to the prophet Jeremiah And it's in Jeremiah 31 that this quote is pulled from. And that's a very interesting place to reference for Jeremiah because it comes in this beautiful chapter of hope and joy and love and the redemption that God is going to offer in the new covenant. But right in the middle of this chapter is this reference. Thus says the Lord, verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And so this is, um, this is an allusion to the exile. So as the Israelites were driven out of the land, they would have passed on their route through Bethlehem and through the site of Rachel's grave. And so Rachel is kind of used symbolically here by the prophet Jeremiah as this description of the loss that Israel's sin has caused for them, of the seeming hopelessness that their current situation has landed them in. They are receiving the covenant curses. They are receiving the penalty for disobeying the Lord for refusing to live in the freedom that he purchased for them. So he's visiting these curses on them. It's created distance from God. It has thrown their future in jeopardy. That's what happens when all of the children are lost, is the future becomes very bleak and hopeless, especially when your entire identity is revolving around a future son who's going to deliver us. And so it seems very hopeless, but it's situated in the middle of this chapter. And so if you keep reading, you can read before or after. We'll just read after for a little bit. In verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, 
declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So Matthew is showing us that Jesus fulfills that. That this is actually the personification of God's mercy for Israel. Because by sending Jesus into exile, by sending him on this path of being subjected to the terrors of the covenant curses, it's actually Jesus' faithfulness that restores Israel. It's Jesus' repentance that, on behalf of his people, that allows them to have hope that God is faithful, that he has not for, forsaken them, that he's remembering this new covenant promise, that there will be a deliverer, there will be a time when his mercy abounds and flows to them. And so Matthew is showing the people, this is this child, his life is your redemption. And so that's that's pretty that's that's a Christmas story. That's a Christmas story. Just don't read any more of the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> because it doesn't go well. Yeah, Jesus survives this initial onslaught from Herod. He goes to Egypt and seeks shelter. But he doesn't finally survive. He's crucified. He does die like the rest of those children. And he faces the full penalty of the curses of the covenant. And, we, and this, is, this is what speaks to our moment right now. It's the cross. It's not... It's not kind of like this happy ending or just thinking of imagining Jesus as just a baby. Jesus is a baby who is born to be a sacrificial lamb because this earth has real evil in it that needs a real answer. But it's also not over. The story hasn't ended. And this is actually where we are situated in the whole history of time, is we are no longer waiting for the birth of Jesus. We are waiting for the return of Jesus. And it's that return of Jesus that will satisfy all of those longings that these like Christmas movies cheaply try and imitate and try and say, oh yeah, you guys can have that here. No, we can only have it when Jesus returns. The return of Jesus is the only ending that is satisfactory. It's the only ending that satisfies that longing. And so this is, this is where we get to take this story that began in Israel, was given to Jesus. Jesus fulfills all of Israel's story 
as he lives it out. And then we are united to Jesus' story when we're trusting in him, when we're believing in him. And so then we get to ask ourselves this question this year, where are we in Exodus? Where are we in need of Exodus? Where do we feel the weight of the oppressive forces of this earth, of sin, of the power of Satan weighing on us? And are we trying to manufacture our own escape? Are we trying to finagle a way where we don't need God to deliver us? Or do we simply cry out? Do we take a cue from the Israelites in Egypt and just cry out for deliverance? Not turning a blind eye to all of the ways that we suffer, but actually engaging them and bringing them to the Lord in the midst of this. And then where are we in exile? Where are we feeling the discipline of God? Where are we feeling the Lord saying, you are worshiping a different God? And the beauty of this is for us, it's much gentler. We don't, you know, we don't get thrown into captivity of the Babylonians anymore. But the Spirit convicts us. We are led to repentance by him. And so we, we can ask ourselves that in, with faith and, and grace. Where do we need the grace of the Lord to remind us of those new covenant promises? That it's not how we live that finally matters. And take refuge in those promises. Because it was Jesus' repentance that purchased it. And that will actually lead us to the type of repentance that God desires. Because we are living in that new covenant, those new covenant promises. Instead of trying to earn his favor, we receive it. And we walk faithfully because we know the grace of God. Because Jesus leads us through that. And so as you, um, as you continue to go through the rest of the season, think about that. Think about the unfinished aspects of your story. And don't try, don't settle, I guess. Don't settle for a superficial ending that seems nice, but doesn't ultimately satisfy Settle for the one that satisfies. Long for Jesus' return. Wait for it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, um, God, we thank you that you see us. You see our conditions. You see our, our hearts. You see the need that we have. And you have met that, Lord. And even as we wait for it, we have received... We have received your son. We have received your spirit. We have received you, God. And so we have enough to sustain us, to get us through. We have enough to wait as we long for Jesus to bring the satisfaction of our heart's desires. And so, God, we, we ask that you would just help us in our waiting, help us as we, um, as we continue to suffer, as we continue to struggle with sin, um, 
We ask that you would be with us, that you wouldn't leave us, that you would hold us to the promises of your new covenant as they are offered to us in your son. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.